Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is the second half of a two-part episode. If you haven't watched or listened to the first part, go back and do that before you continue with this one. Adolfo Constanzo spent years building up a group of followers who would obey his every command. In return for the spiritual protection they believed he could offer, they would steal, assault, and even kill for him. They assisted Adolfo in creating his Nganga, a cauldron that was filled with sacred items and the body parts of people they had tortured and killed. But that wasn't enough for the cult leader. He believed that he needed to expand his protection, and the only way he could do that would be to find an American to sacrifice. That spirit would spread his protection over the border into the United States. That sacrifice would have the opposite effect and mark the beginning of the end of Adolfo Costanzo and his narco-Satanist cult. This is Monsters. Rancho Santa Elena was only 20 miles from Matamoros, but it might as well have been another world. With the closest neighboring rivals swiftly dispatched, the entire ranch was far from prying eyes. The Hernandez family raised goats and cattle and even grew a few crops to legitimize the farm. But inside the structures of the farm lay its secrets. Inside the small cottage house and metal barn, the Hernandez family would store their weed and cocaine between runs. But farther into the farm, next to the horse corral, was a shack. That was where Adolfo wanted to put his Nganga. He had the branches for it, but did not yet have the body parts. Before Adolfo could indulge in what he really wanted, he had to focus on helping Elio with the business. They brought in more followers, trusted members of the Hernandez clan and operations. Among the most notable was Little Seraphin Hernandez, the son of Elio's brother. Little Seraphin went to school with Sarah and was preparing to go into law enforcement, a field in which he would no doubt be welcomed into with open arms, seeing how his family were in charge of the local police. A few of Little Seraphin's friends were welcomed in as well, and among them was another young gay college student who was nicknamed El Coquito, or The Flirt, whose real name was David Cerna Valdez. He also brought in a friend named Jorge Valente Del Fierro Gomez, who came into the cult with a drug problem. Seraphin likely knew Adolfo had a rule that no one in the cult was supposed to sample the product, but he was young and cocky and thought that he and his friends were invincible. Adolfo won over his new followers by shielding his police sources from them. To the new followers, Adolfo would hold elaborate ceremonies in his shack, sacrificing chickens and chanting in Bantu in his ceremonial white robe. 
he would then pretend to have a magical revelation about where they could get more cocaine. In reality, to plan these runs, Adolfo would call Salvador, or anyone at the Matamoros police station really, and get tips about when smaller dealers were doing runs so they could rob them. Or the police would call him and say they'd confiscated coke from someone and wanted him to sell it. Adolfo thought perhaps he should go back to Mexico City and visit his lovers, Martin and Omar, but first he needed to get the Ngonga fermenting. Adolfo gathered the usual ingredients, a boiled cat, a roasted tortoise, and the head of a goat, along with numerous spices, and buried his Ngonga in the ground so it would rot properly. Then he went off to visit his lovers. When he arrived home, Omar was upset at the lack of time they'd been spending together, so Adolfo whined and dined him for a few days, going out to dinner and going shopping, all the while thinking about whose brain he could spill to put in the Nganga. While Adolfo was on the prowl for his next victim, Jorge made the mistake of complaining to Adolfo about how he couldn't get his roommate to leave his apartment. Adolfo, acting as a concerned friend, asked about what had happened and Jorge told him how the man, Ramon Paz Esquivel, was going above and beyond with being a nuisance. Ramon worked as a transvestite who went by La Claudia and he'd been bringing underage boys home and making out with them in the stairwell to annoy Jorge's neighbors. He'd been starting fights and worst of all, he'd kicked one of Jorge's prized French poodles. When Jorge was through venting, Adolfo asked him if he wanted him to get rid of La Claudia for him. Jorge didn't answer, which Adolfo took as a yes. Jorge was nervous about what Adolfo was going to do, and his nervousness was compounded when the magician began to set up candles in Jorge's apartment while Ramon was at work. He had them all don white robes and sent Sarah home, but he made Omar stay. Since Omar had not been witness to any killings so far, Adolfo wanted to toughen him up. Adolfo, Jorge, Martin, Omar, and a new recruit whose medal they were going to test named Juan Carlos Fragosa sat in the dark lit only by candlelight while they waited for La Claudia to get home. Jorge realized they were going to kill Ramon when they brought him to the bathtub and taped his mouth shut. Jorge tried to protest. Perhaps he never truly believed Adolfo's stories, or perhaps he just didn't want to see the carnage himself. After the first cut, Omar and Jorge pleaded to leave the bathroom. Adolfo told Omar that he was disappointed that he wasn't stronger, but let him go. They took the dogs for a walk to get away from the screaming. Martin stood by Adolfo, as did Juan while they set about torturing La Claudia. Juan threw up, but did not ask to leave. Adolfo proceeded to cut off all of Ramon's fingers, then his toes, then his penis. He wanted to skin him alive as well, but after just a few cuts, Ramon was screaming too much and Adolfo worried the neighbors might finally call the police. He decided that he had inflicted enough suffering that Ramon's soul would obey him in the afterlife. He finally slit his throat, then whispered to the dying man, quote, You are mine. You will serve me in hell, Ramon. I'll come for you. Adolfo then picked out the body parts he wanted for his Nganga. The brain, of course, to let the Nganga think. He also wanted to save as much of the blood as he could, and decided he wanted the fingers and toes as well as a shin bone to be able to stir and play with the Nganga better. 
they put Ramon's unwanted body parts into several trash bags along with their clothes, but they did a poor job of disposing of the bags. Local children watched them drop the bags off on the street and then speed away. Then unfortunately, the curious children looked inside the bags. Jorge reported Ramon missing to deflect suspicion. He put on a good show of begging the detectives to solve the case, saying it was just terrible what had happened. With a brain finally in his Matamoros and Ganga, Adolfo felt invincible. He soon decided if they could afford to rip off small-time dealers, they should start putting other dealers in their place as well. He arranged a deal with a distant relative of the Hernandezes named El Gancho, someone who trusted them and decided he was going to double-cross him. Ovidio Hernandez was the one to set up the deal, one of the Hernandez brothers who had not yet quite bought into the spiritual side of their new operation. Once Adolfo told Elio in a video of his plan, the brothers were apprehensive. Even more so when Adolfo said he wanted the double cross to take place at the ranch. Although El Gancho trusted the Hernandez boys, he was not about to make an exchange in such an isolated place. He insisted on doing the trade-off at a shopping mall. Though the Hernandez boys did not want to double cross family, they were too afraid of Adolfo by that point to tell him no. When Adolfo held a gun up to El Gancho at the mall parking lot and drove off, a video was left to explain himself. He informed El Gancho that they were taking his money but would not be giving him the drugs. It turns out El Gancho had a boss of his own that he was also deathly afraid of. El Gancho was so afraid of what his boss would do to him that he fell to his knees and threw up in the mall parking lot. El Gancho's boss in turn ordered him to double-cross his family. Two days later, they caught Ovidio out at the mall with his two-year-old son. By the time Ovidio placed a panicked phone call reading the rival gang's demands, Adolfo was out traveling, and many members of the gang had already spent their cut. Elio and Little Seraphin decided they were in over their heads. Because the kidnapping had happened over the border, they decided to try their luck with the police in Brownsville, Texas. They met with Lieutenant George Gavito, but he was familiar with the family's line of work. They tried to tell him that there was a little boy involved that would be killed, but the lieutenant just mocked them and told them he couldn't help them unless they admitted to the illegal activity that led to the kidnapping. Finally, the brothers got a hold of Adolfo and he was more than ready to help. He wouldn't give them the money back though, he had his own way he wanted to do things. Elio was ordered to go pick someone up, anyone he could find, and he settled on a drifter looking for work. As the first sacrifice to be made in the shed with the Nganga, Adolfo had gone all out. He drew in chalk on the cauldron the cross hatches and arrows that matched those carved onto his back. Adolfo had his method mostly figured out by then for the anonymous man. He went for ears and fingers, cutting them off slowly and feeding them to the cauldron. The whole time he was praying to Pembe to give them protection and strike down their enemies. Near the end, Adolfo decided to take his sick ritual one step further. He ordered Elio out of the shed so he could have privacy. Then he proceeded to rape the man before finally killing him with a machete blow to the head. After he was done, the rest of the cult was invited back in. They caught what blood they could in a pan and poured it into the Nganga. 
and Adolfo placed the man's head inside the cauldron. Then he turned to Elio. He was disappointed that Elio had been visibly disgusted by the torture of the unnamed man. He ordered Elio to cut out his heart using a dagger they'd stolen from a museum. It was a dagger that had been used by the Aztecs themselves for the same purpose. To desensitize those who had not yet seen the level of carnage Adolfo inflicted on his victims, he told them to cut up the man's corpse. He had Elio string a wire through the dead man's spine long enough to stick out of the dirt where they had buried him. He wanted to make a necklace once the corpse had rotted away from the skeleton. The next day, Ovidio and his son were released, and the kidnappers fled town. El Gancho later said that money was not worth killing his family over, let alone a little boy. The real reason didn't matter. Ovidio was a believer after that. The next to die was Little Seraphin's coke-snorting friend, Jorge. He'd been sampling the supply they were selling, and he was bold enough to be snorting their drugs in front of Sarah. After Sarah told him about this, Adolfo spent a week plotting his revenge. He decided to hold a meeting under the guise of simply feeding the Nganga animals. Then, in his dramatic white robe, he declared they had a traitor in their family. He singled out Jorge and told the rest of the cult what he had done, and what would happen to them if they stole as well. He incapacitated the young man, then instructed the other cult members to help kill him. Everyone had to get in a good kick, stab, or punch. Eventually, Adolfo ended it by spilling the man's brains with a hammer. After that, Adolfo's next victims fell into his lap. Salvador decided he needed Adolfo's help with a problem. He suspected two of his men of being disloyal. Later, media coverage would confirm his suspicions as the two were in fact police informants. Adolfo took care of Salvador's problem. He sliced off numerous bits from each man, fingers, toes, and testicles, before carving out both men's hearts as they were still beating. The men were buried in the same grave on the ranch. While the cult members were burying them, Adolfo went to see if his first necklace was ready. He ripped the spine of the unknown hitchhiker out of the dirt and gave it to Elio as a gift. Elio was delighted. In between murders, the cult found time to fly back to Mexico City for a Christmas party at Adolfo's place. Somewhere out there, there are Polaroid snapshots of the party. There's one of Elio as someone surprised him while he was bending over, one of Doobie wearing a shirt that says, quote, I'm a virgin, and numerous others of the various members smiling and having a good time. After the Christmas party, they went to the Room of the Dead to carve ruins into Ovidio's back. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After their brief holiday hiatus, it was back to killing. The next victim was a low-level weed dealer that had been trying to do business with them. They tortured him to find the location of where he kept his stash. After all, they might as well make some money off the killing. 
the dealer gave them the location of his staff after just one finger was sliced off. But Adolfo kept going, not wanting to stop his fun so soon. The dealer had told them he had two men guarding the stash, so the cult prepared for a fight if necessary. Adolfo and his gang donned their police uniforms and went to get the stash under the guise that it was a police raid. Both men surrendered immediately when they got there. One of the men they found guarding the stash worked on the farm. He'd only recently gotten into the drug business. The other man was a dealer who left behind a pregnant wife. Adolfo didn't want to overwhelm his followers. They'd already tortured one man that day, so he dumped all three men into a grave and shot them all. After that, his followers were ordered to retrieve the valuable parts of their bodies to feed the Nganga, further desensitizing them to the gore. Just over a week later, Adolfo declared the Nganga hungry again. They drove around the city and grabbed someone coming out of a cafe, but he tried to escape and was shot because he was screaming in the car. This victim would never be identified. As they dug his grave, some of the cult members half-heartedly stabbed at his body simply because it was habit by now to mutilate the dead. Adolfo was furious that the sacrifice had been botched, so he ordered Doobie and a few others to go out and kidnap the first person they saw. After they left, Adolfo told Elio that he wanted him to finally participate in the killing. Whoever they picked up would be Elio's first kill. The first person that they saw was a 14-year-old boy named Jose Luis Garcia Luna. Jose was walking home from helping out on the legitimate part of Rancho Santa Elena, unaware of the sinister activity he worked so close to. He was one of the workers who tended to the livestock. Jose's mother called him Coyotito, and he was the only child of his numerous siblings to have graduated the sixth grade. Jose loved the ranch he worked at and hoped to one day have his own just like it. He never could have imagined the ranch would be where he would die. Jose would be spared the torture that so many at Santa Elena suffered. When they brought him to the shack, he had a bag over his head, and Elio had made up his mind to kill whoever they brought him quickly. He ripped the bag off the boy's head, then decapitated him with one blow. Gruesome, but thankfully quick. However, once Elio lowered the machete, he recognized the football jersey the boy was wearing, then he recognized his severed head. Jose had been working at the ranch because he was Elio's baby cousin. Adolfo didn't care. He ordered Elio to bring him the boy's heart for the Nganga. When Jose didn't come home, his mother poured all of the resources she could into trying to find her son. She hitchhiked and walked to the Matamoros police station, only to be told off numerous times by the police who told her her son probably just hopped over the border to find a better life in the States. She talked to all of the boy's friends and family, no doubt asking at least one of the Hernandez boys about him, but no one gave her an answer. Still, she refused to believe the policeman's explanation. She knew in her heart that her son would not have abandoned her family without saying goodbye. Though the woman was brushed off by the local police, likely because they worked for the Hernandez family, had she tried to go back a bit later, she might have been met with someone who would actually try to help her. In late February of 1989, a man by the name of Juan Benitez Ayala was sent to take over the Matamoros police force. 
He and his new team arrested every single officer who had been working there the day they took over. Though Juan's predecessor in charge, Guillermo Perez, who'd been helping the Hernandez family, managed to escape. He left behind $5 million in drug money just on his desk at work. Adolfo was not worried about losing his allies in the police. He had magic on his side. The Colt's next victim would be the third and final man who would never be identified. He was selling cocaine to college kids over spring break, and nobody in town seemed to know who he was. Perhaps he'd come into town just for the spring break spectacle. When they brought the unnamed man back to the shack, Adolfo let his followers make small cuts, perhaps taking a few fingers here and there before he brought the man into the shack to have his way with him. But Adolfo didn't kill him afterward, because, remarkably, the man had not yet screamed. Adolfo tried skinning the man alive, but gave up when the man still refused Adolfo the satisfaction of hearing him scream. Eventually, Adolfo grew frustrated and killed the man. They did not put any of his body parts in the Nganga because it was clear that his spirit would not serve them in the afterlife. Adolfo then told his followers, quote, Next time, bring me an American. Someone blonde and soft. Bring me someone I can use. Someone who will scream. While they started their hunt amongst the spring breakers, Adolfo elaborated more on his thought process. He told his followers that they were having better luck on the Mexican side of the border because their victims had been Mexican and could only protect them in Mexico. They needed an American whose soul could work for them on the other side. The next victim that they picked was believed to be the only American the cult killed, and thus the most well-known in American media. Mark Kilroy was a pre-med student who was devoutly religious, kind, and caring. He'd just celebrated his birthday and went to nearby South Padre Island to party it up for spring break. He'd been using a little liquid courage to break out of his shell and try to flirt with a few fellow spring breakers, and by all accounts, he was having a good time. Mark was with three close friends for the trip, and though they tried to stick together, they didn't worry too much when Mark and his friend Bill Huddleton fell behind. Mark was talking to a fellow spring breaker, a girl who'd entered a local beauty contest, and Bill stayed behind with him. Bill went to urinate in an alley nearby and give Mark a chance to wrap things up, but when he came back, Mark was gone. The cult hadn't needed to grab Mark. He was drunk enough that when they offered him a ride, he gladly climbed in the car with little Seraphin and Elgato. But a few minutes into the ride, he started to grow apprehensive. Seraphin stopped the car on the way to the ranch to urinate, and Mark forced his way out of the vehicle. He almost escaped, but David Cerna Valdez and Sergio Salinas were following the pickup truck in a backup car in case anything went wrong. They screeched to a halt and yelled at Mark to freeze, and the American, apparently believing they were the police coming to get him, obeyed. When the kidnappers brought Mark to Santa Elena, they had him sit in a hammock between two trees. Adolfo made a dramatic entrance, driving past in his gold Mercedes. He nodded his approval, then rolled up the window and drove away. While Mark's friends frantically searched for him back in the city, Mark was left alone that night. His parents have since talked about Mark's devout religious faith and have expressed that they were glad he had time to pray. 
The next morning, the caretaker, Domingo Reyes Bustamante, made Mark breakfast, and though Mark tried to speak with him, he didn't speak English. Mark Kilroy was the first sacrifice where the cult members all seemed truly desensitized and ready to participate, though Adolfo did demand privacy from them when he raped Mark, a strange boundary to draw when he would cut off limbs and ears so readily in front of his followers. When they were finished, they poured his brain into the Nganga, then placed a wire into his spine so they could make a necklace with it later. Mark Kilroy's uncle was a U.S. Customs Supervisor in Los Angeles, and because of that, and because he was a sweet religious pre-med student, the media was taken with the case. His picture was everywhere, and for the first time, the cult felt the pressure of law enforcement trying to sniff them out. Their connections in the Matamoros police were mostly gone, with Juan on the warpath to root out corruption. Mark's parents, Jim and Helen Kilroy, went down to Mexico, and every day Jim would pass around flyers on the bridge from South Padre Island to Matamoros. Brownsville citizen Joe Rodriguez met up with Jim at church shortly after he had seen him on television. He offered the Kilroys whatever help they needed, and they ended up staying in his house with his family while they focused on finding Mark. The intensity of the police investigation for Mark gave many others hope that perhaps the search for their missing family member would rekindle as well. Dozens of locals helped Jim pass out flyers. As the weeks passed, Adolfo felt safe despite the investigation. He decided it had been long enough that his Nganga was hungry again. He already knew who the next victim would be. Sarah had been rekindling things with her old boyfriend, Gilberto. When Adolfo said that Gilberto needed to die, Sarah only protested a little bit before helping to prepare the shack. Everyone except for Sarah joined in this time. Doobie sliced off some toes, not to put in the Nganga, but to put in his pocket as souvenirs. After Adolfo had his way with Gilberto, Elio was given the honor of slitting his throat. After they killed him, they all went out for hamburgers. The first major break in the case came on April Fool's Day. Little Seraphin was so excited about their newfound protection on the border that he decided to flaunt it. Adolfo had told them that killing Mark Kilroy would give them protection from the Americans, so when Seraphin saw a checkpoint on the road to the border, he decided that the checkpoint didn't apply to him. He drove past it, running over cones in the way, ignoring the yelling officers because he thought they couldn't see him. Well, they could and they followed him. Rather than pulling him over, they wanted to see where he was going. They waited until he pulled up at the ranch, then followed him in, pretending they were lost. Domingo gave them directions and one officer stalled for time by asking the caretaker about the ranch and his time there, so the other officer could poke around. They spotted marijuana residue and a statue of a legua made of cement and seashells. When they confirmed their suspicion that there was something illegal going on, they left and reported it to Juan. Juan was a superstitious man himself. When the officers on the other end described the statue of Alegua, he knew exactly what it was, and Juan was delighted to have the opportunity to finally take down the Hernandez family. Juan had actually been dealing with the Hernandez family for quite some time. On his last posting, he'd burned down a 370-acre marijuana farm owned by the family, but he'd never been able to put them behind bars. 
he hoped that was about to change. That night, Adolfo was preparing to kill another victim. He'd been distracted from Seraphin's shenanigans because El Duby was in trouble. A policeman by the name of Victor Salsacita was on the lookout for him. Victor was an interesting man. When he was doing legitimate police work, he seemed to somewhat care about the law. Murderers, rapists, and child molesters were the targets he would go after, and he would try to cover those cases long after other policemen had given up on them. This didn't change the fact that he was friendly with the drug traffickers, though. He helped them with runs and supplied them with information. Victor had been especially close with the man Doobie shot in Los Sobreros, and since Doobie had come back to Matamoros, Victor had been looking for him. But Victor was not the only one with police connections. Victor was running a stakeout at one of the Hernandez's safe houses when two fellow policemen approached him. They brought him into their car because they said the chief wanted to speak with him. Instead, they drove him to Adolfo. Like the others, Victor was stabbed, tortured, and various parts were cut off to feed the Nganga. Sarah did not come inside the shack, but she did wait outside the whole time and listen to the screams, a first for her. A week later, feeling safe from the police because of their sacrifice, Adolfo went ahead with a drug deal smuggling $300,000 worth of marijuana across the border. They were nearly caught, since the investigative team in Brownsville had been tipped off about the deal and were having a stakeout at the spot on the river that they were going to cross. But the tips were often unreliable, and the officers left about a half an hour before the deal went down. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The next morning, though, Juan was working his own angle. He'd had Seraphin's car phone tapped. They heard him bragging about the deal the night before and decided to make an arrest. They followed him to the house that Victor had been kidnapped outside of, where Seraphin was meeting David Cernavaldez. Officers found numerous illegal guns at the house and arrested the two men, bringing them to Rancho Santa Elena. A small group of officers stayed behind to watch the house and captured Elio and Sergio soon after. All four men were brought back to the station when they didn't find anyone else at the ranch, but police kept watch. They nabbed Domingo that morning. He started talking immediately, and though he didn't know the details of the killings, he knew that people were brought to the ranch and never left. He told the police they brought an American there once. Police asked him for a description, and when Domingo said he'd been killed about three weeks prior, they showed him a picture of Mark to confirm. In Mexico in the 80s, getting a suspect to confess was very different than in America. Police called it moral pressure, but really they meant torture. They would regularly beat suspects, pour soda water up their noses, and otherwise threaten them, and Little Seraphin did not stand up to this as well as the others. Over the course of five hours, he told them everything. While Seraphin was in custody, the Kilroys were launching their own investigation. 
the mayor of San Antonio was enlisted by the Kilroys to help with the search. He actually paid a visit to Juan's station right after they'd captured Seraphin. The mayor met with Juan and noticed candles and ritualistic objects on his desk. He inquired about them and Juan deflected, saying it was an angle he was looking into. But in reality, Juan always kept Santeria objects on his desk to protect him from any dark magic he might encounter in his line of work. Juan did not share what he learned with the mayor, he had to be sure first. Meanwhile, Adolfo had been tipped off about the arrests. He and Martin were together when they got the news and they quickly picked up Sarah. As Adolfo and the others vanished into the wind, police began the grueling task of digging up bodies. They called in their U.S. counterparts the next morning, telling them that they may have found something about Mark Kilroy. Cameron County Sheriff Ernesto Flores, who'd been trying to help run the investigation in America, as well as two men sent by a U.S. Customs official who'd been working closely with the Kilroy family, were brought along to investigate the ranch. Over a dozen men armed for a raid went to investigate, just to be safe. As a child, Juan had been raised fully in touch with his native Oaxacan culture, and he wanted the men to be prepared not only for physical threats from cult members lurking about, but also for spiritual threats. When they arrived that morning, little Seraphin in tow, they made sure to tread carefully on the cursed ground. When they entered the shack, they had Seraphin go in first to make sure it was safe. When the officers walked into the blood-soaked shack, the American officers realized for the first time just what they were in for when little Seraphin pointed to Mark's brain floating at the top of the foul Nganga. Juan made Seraphin drag the heavy Nganga outside, not wanting any of his men to touch it. What happened next bewildered the Americans present, but had clearly been carefully coordinated by Juan's men. One man fired a machine gun into the air, and another ran inside the shack. The man sprinkled holy water on all of the bloody artifacts surrounding the Nganga, old bones, antlers, and weapons. He then smashed all of the rum bottles on the ground. He tipped over bowls of blood, attempting to release the evil spirits that dwelled within. All the while, other officers looked on nervously, hands on their triggers, ready to shoot whatever might come for them. Little Seraphin did not quite have it in his head that he was going to get in trouble. He thought Adolfo and his magic would come to save him. When he showed the police where the wire was that was attached to Mark's spine, he told them it was so they could make a necklace. He said he was jealous that Sarah and the others had necklaces, but he didn't have one yet. After this comment and a brief beating, Juan set little Seraphin to work digging up the grave. Eventually, they recovered a part of Mark's skeleton along with a jawbone to identify him through dental records. Throughout the process, Seraphin kept up a giddy attitude. At one point, he told the agents that he remembered participating in killing Mark, but he couldn't remember what he'd done exactly. He thought he'd only chopped off a few fingers. Throughout the search of Santa Elena, the agents would regularly beat Seraphin for his cheery attitude, but he never let up. The media circus that would follow the discoveries is yet another part of this strange case where what really happened is blurred. American authorities accused Mexican police of not cooperating with them. 
Mexican authorities accused American police of claiming they single-handedly solved the case, and the infighting between departments only fed the spectacle. American authorities did not necessarily tell the media that they outright solved the case, but they left out Juan's name and said only that the search that they'd been running for Mark Kilroy had finally been successful. The American side of the media, only being fed tidbits about what rituals went on, decided to speculate for themselves that Satanism must surely have been to blame. The next day, on April 12, 1989, Attorney General Jim Maddox took over 100 journalists from both sides of the border on a tour of the ranch. The Ngonga was still full of animal and human parts, and there were smaller cauldrons with various offal as well. At one point during the tour, a journalist found a clump of human hair and skin in the dirt and held it up for the others to see. This opened the floodgates for various local papers to print whatever story they felt like. The media was all over the Satanism angle. Local experts were called who had no connection to the case. A local paper, the Corpus Christi Caller Times, interviewed their town sheriff who had been attending workshops on how to fight the devil. He spoke about how he thought that many missing children and teenagers were being stolen by Satanists and sacrificed to the devil. The police chief in Brownsville, Texas, was quick to tell the media that the cult was satanic in nature. While the news was breaking, the family members of the victims were finally finding some sense of closure. On April 12th, there was a ceremony planned to bring attention to Mark Kilroy's case. When the news broke that his body was found, the ceremony turned into a memorial service instead. Dozens of children from a nearby religious school decorated trees with yellow ribbons in a gesture of remembrance. Mark's friends spoke with the media, still in shock about his murder. Helen Kilroy spoke with the press and said that the only way she could rationalize the evil actions of the cult was that they must have been possessed by the devil. She said she would pray for the cult members. The Kilroys used much of the funding that had been pooled to help find Mark to give other victims proper burials. Many of the other victims were still being identified. Police laid out the corpses, so many that they had to use two funeral homes, and families who had missing loved ones filed through solemnly. Among them was Jose Luis Garcia Luna's mother. She walked through the first funeral home and couldn't find Jose, but when it came time to go through the second, she couldn't do it. Her adult daughter offered to go instead, and inside she found the boy, his football jersey still intact. Finally, the woman had the answers she was looking for. Moises Castillo's father would get closure during this time as well, as he finally decided to have the police investigate the claim children had made about the bodies being buried in his orchard. Police quickly found the grave of his son. On April 13th, the media was beginning to speak with experts, but still publishing whatever speculation came their way, as they wanted to get updates out as fast as possible. Articles describing the voodoo cult ran alongside articles where anthropologists explained the history of Palo Mayambi. Perhaps the biggest scandal caused by the media circus, but one that American authorities conveniently left out of the papers, was that they almost caught Elgato, but he got away. He had stopped by one of the Hernandez houses, and American police actually stopped him to question him, but didn't think to compare him to the photos of cult members. 
both Elgato and Ovidio have never been caught. Eventually, the media caught wind of Juan's involvement, but journalists at the time focused on his handsome Indian features and his big Bambi eyes rather than the fact that he solved the case. Juan didn't have time to deal with the media anyway, he had cult members to catch, and whatever he needed to do to persuade the others to give up Adolfo's addresses would be done. After enough moral pressure, he'd gotten all of the answers he could get about Adolfo's aliases and addresses. Adolfo and his group went to Mexico City first to retrieve Omar. They brought money, clothes, and supplies, knowing it was only a matter of time before their pictures would be on the news. Then, they went to go stay with Martin's little sister, Teresa, who the police likely wouldn't be searching for. Adolfo and his followers would watch the news anytime they could without Teresa seeing. She was unaware of what they had done. They all dyed their hair, pink, red, dark brown, blonde, anything to disguise themselves. Adolfo shaved off his beloved mullet and Doobie gelled his newly dyed hair up. They left Teresa's house after a few days and she was finally allowed to watch the news. She saw the slaughter that the people she considered to be family had committed. They stayed with Salvador after that, then moved around in shady hotel rooms. The total number of people Adolfo contacted and who helped him on the run is unclear. Cult members later recall phone calls where he called up the rich and powerful and threatened to expose their connection to him or where he called up his less influential clients and simply threatened to kill them and their families. Both methods of persuasion were equally productive and no one that Adolfo reached out to exposed him. They called Carla when they realized they needed a more permanent solution. Adolfo tried to charm Carla at first, but when she was hesitant about if they could stay with her, he said, quote, I need your help, Carla, or I'll kill you and your three lovely daughters and then I'll make you all suffer in hell when I join you there. By April 15th, they were staying with Carla and she was trying to get them fake passports. Adolfo decided they needed to get out of the city and ordered Carla to try to find them an apartment. Then they went and stayed in a series of remote cabins and motels in the countryside, always sending El Dubi to check in as the police didn't have his picture yet. While the cult was on the run, police were raiding Adolfo's houses. They found his bizarre journals and his inganga in Mexico City. Sarah's apartment was tossed as well, and police found her cauldron and various bloodstains. They speculated to her family that one corner of Sarah's room may have held a disturbing secret. There were bloodstains about three feet off the ground, and authorities found children's clothing in her room. That led them to speculate she may have at some point sacrificed a child. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Newspaper reports that the cult was linked to satanic child abductions were spurred on the rumors that Sarah had been sacrificing children in her house. A prank phone call and general unease led many parents to pull their children out of school. The residents of Sarah's old neighborhood, many of whom watched her grow up, kept their children indoors as well for fear that La Madrina would come back to get them. Texas lawmakers heard testimony from so-called experts on Satanism that claimed that children who went missing near the border were being used in satanic sacrifices. And given the gruesome news of the Matamoros killings, something that would normally be chalked up to baseless hysteria was given a platform. Sarah became a kind of boogeyman in her own right because of that. Her classmates were shocked when the news broke. They recalled her taking them out to dinner and offering to help if they ever needed anything, though certain things about Sarah became more sinister in hindsight. Apparently, around the time Mark Kilroy disappeared, Sarah had asked two baseball players she casually knew to go away with her for the weekend and visit Metamoros. They were both blonde men. While the media speculated and police arrested others connected to the cult, El Gancho, Little Seraphin, and those who had eluded capture were going stir-crazy. In the tiny cabins they hid out in, Adolfo would tell them about his childhood in Miami unprompted, then go on crazy rants saying they all needed to make a suicide pact. He threatened to kill Sarah numerous times but never went through with it. As the weeks wore on, Rancho Santa Elena was left largely unguarded. Thrill-seekers had been free to come and go as they liked. People who hadn't found their loved ones in the morgue even visited to try to search for graves that had been missed. But in late April, that all came to a halt. Police had finally been able to consult with spiritual experts, and they gave Juan the rundown on Paulo Mayambe. Though he'd been able to recognize the elements of Santeria and the cult, other aspects of the shack had eluded him. When Juan left the shack and went to consult with experts, he broke an egg over his body to dispel the bad spirits, just as Adolfo had done during his own cleansing ceremonies. He informed the experts that he intended to perform an exorcism, and they told him that if he really wanted to get inside Adolfo's head and throw him off balance, that he should televise the exorcism to make sure Adolfo saw it. On April 22nd, Juan, for at least the second time in his career, opted to burn down his rival's business. They covered the shack in gasoline and burned it to the ground. He allowed the burning to be filmed discreetly and afterward, they released a dove over the site. The dove flew off, a clear sign that the exorcism had worked. When Adolfo saw the burning of his beloved shack on TV the next day, he screamed and ranted for over an hour. Refusing to play into the superstitious stereotypes that the American media was saying about the Mexican police, Juan claimed that he did not burn the shack. It must have been some superstitious peasants. Days later, on April 27th, Carla had found the cult a rundown apartment they could stay at where no one would ask any questions. It was a filthy apartment in a filthy neighborhood, much like the ones Adolfo had grown up in as a child. 
As if his life had come full circle, Adolfo found himself squatting in a dirty, crowded apartment, fighting against the mold and clutter. He watered the plants, meticulously scrubbed the bathroom, and even lined up the cereal boxes to be perfectly even with each other on the kitchen shelves. During this time, Adolfo made elaborate plans both in his life and for the afterlife. If they made it to South America, they would pay plastic surgeons to give them new faces. If they were caught, they would all kill each other in a murder-suicide, then come back from hell to wreak vengeance upon their enemies. While this was happening, Sarah claims that she tried to contact the police for help, but Sarah's statements are notoriously unreliable. The cult's final stand took place on May 6, 1989. Adolfo was peering out of the curtains, watching in paranoia as he liked to do, when he spotted a police car. The car was only there because police were going to perform a stakeout at a nearby supermarket where they'd gotten a few tips that could point to the cult. Someone had spotted an exceedingly tall woman, and El Duby had tried to buy groceries with a $100 bill. The two tips combined had them ready to check out the market, but the place they'd chosen to convene beforehand was right outside Adolfo's window. Adolfo opened fire on the cars the minute he spotted them. He rained down bullets on the crowded street, but bystanders ran away in time, and only one officer was grazed with a bullet. Another officer tried to fire back, but his gun jammed. Backup arrived quickly, though, and police began exchanging machine gun fire in the middle of the crowded street. Adolfo realized they were outnumbered when backup arrived, so he decided to create a diversion. He took coins and American dollars and threw them out of the window. And despite the gunfire that had just happened, people ran to grab them. Adolfo then shot at bystanders, but thankfully only wounded one in the arm. He shot at a nearby propane tank to create an explosion so they could escape, but the bullets did nothing. Realizing they were almost out of ammunition, Adolfo began raving about his suicide pact again and burning the money they had brought with them, saying that if they couldn't have it, no one could. When it came time to die, though, only Martin was willing to go out with Adolfo. Adolfo went to a nearby closet, cuddled Martin, and ordered El Duby to kill them together. Doobie, always so eager to kill, hesitated for the first time. After all, Adolfo was his family, but eventually he relented, killing the pair in a hail of bullets. Adolfo Constanzo was just 26 years old when he died. After that, the suicide pact fell apart, and Doobie, Sarah, and Omar all surrendered. Sarah ran out screaming, trying to act as if she were a victim who'd been kidnapped. She would keep up this ruse most of her life, even later writing an autobiography despite all of the other living cult members testifying that she'd been a willing participant. Omar would briefly try to play the victim card as well, but no one was buying it. After the shootout, Mexican authorities brought the suspects to participate in a news conference. They had them stand in front of a table filled with ritualistic objects, fake skulls, candles, swords, and robes. David Cerna Valdez showed his scars to reporters while they explained their beliefs. When Adolfo and Martin's bodies were being processed and identified, Assistant General Attorney Frederico Ponce Rojas paid a visit to the morgue. When later describing what he felt visiting Adolfo's body, Frederico said, quote, I don't believe in magic. I'm not superstitious. 
The only spirit that possesses me is my job. But when I saw Adolfo lying there down at the morgue, I felt something. I felt a force, an evil force. I don't believe in such things really, and it only lasted a moment, but in those seconds I felt it. An evilness inside that son of a bitch, still there, waiting and hating. I didn't know the true meaning of the word evil until then. On May 19th, the media got wind that Adolfo's body was headed back to Miami. Fausto spoke with the media to say that they did not want the public at the funeral and they would not be disclosing details of the service. Two days later, Adolfo's family held a funeral for him. Only family and a few close friends were allowed to attend. Fausto told the media that he was making it his priority to clear his brother's name, and he did not believe Adolfo had killed anyone. Mark Kilroy's body also made its way back to America, to his family, and he was able to have a proper funeral. A few months after Mark's body was found, his parents started a foundation in his name. The foundation is dedicated to helping those struggling with addiction, and to raising awareness about the violence that surrounds illegal drugs. A year later, for spring break of 1990, college kids descended on Matamoros and nearby South Padre Island. The numbers were just as strong as the year before, but with a few notable differences. Students stayed in groups of 10 or 20 instead of the usual 4 or 5 and Mexican police patrolled the streets, keeping tourists from straying into back roads or away from tourist parts of town. Eventually, all members of the cult who'd been caught were given sentences ranging from 30 years to life. The U.S. government has stated that if any of them are set free after their sentence is up, they will be prosecuted in the U.S. for their crimes. Justice was served to those in prison, but not all of them have been caught and due to the questionable integrity of some of the authorities involved, there are still unanswered questions and loose ends. Numerous members of Adolfo's cult were never found. Those identified only by their first names in his journals never came forward. El Gato and Ovidio are still on the loose. But in addition to that, the true extent of the corruption that allowed Adolfo to continue his crimes may never be known. Fausto Rodriguez told the Houston Chronicle that Adolfo was innocent and the police were framing him. He refused to believe that his brother could have committed such terrible acts. He said that the police killed Adolfo and when he asked to elaborate said, quote, Maybe my brother knew something that they did not want to be known. They found a book of my brother showing that he knew a lot of politicians. That book disappeared. There were a lot of names of stars, like famous Mexicans. They didn't want what was in that book to get out. Fausto is certainly doing some wishful thinking and saying Adolfo never killed anyone, but he may very well be right about the journals. Author Jim Schutz, who wrote Cauldron of Blood, a book about the case, claims that the Mexican police who arrived to process the scene after the shootout tore numerous pages out of Adolfo's notebook to protect other high-ranking officials in Mexican law enforcement who'd been involved in the cult. Cauldron of Blood was sparse on sources and footnotes and may not be terribly reliable, but the Mexican media did initially try to hide the involvement of higher-up officers. When the news broke that Salvador Vidal Garcia Alarcon had been involved with the cult, the cult members implicated numerous other members of law enforcement in their statements. But during a press conference discussing Salvador's involvements, a deputy federal attorney general swore that there were no other law enforcement connections. 
he would not discuss the claims about the head of Interpol, Florentino Ventura Gutierrez, being involved. Other spokesmen backed this up. Eventually, the truth came out, but it was after months of denial. Florentino himself never commented on the case. The autumn before Adolfo was caught, he died in a mysterious murder-suicide. Florentino had been alleged to be involved in several cover-ups and would forever remain a mysterious figure in Mexican history. Before the Constanzo case, it was speculated that he'd been involved in the cover-ups and conspiracies surrounding the death of a DEA agent named Kiki Camarana, who'd been tortured and killed by a drug cartel and whose case has an air of mysticism and conspiracy as well. To get into all of the conspiracies and tangential connections that the case of Adolfo Constanzo could have been involved in would take hours. Author Edward Humes, who wrote the book Buried Secrets, which covers the case in exponentially more detail than any other source available, alleges that a child's skull was found in Adolfo's Nganga and that there were children's clothes found in the shack where it was housed. Around the time Adolfo was active, 16 children were killed in ritual sacrifices in Mexico City, but any kind of tangible connection to him in those cases has never been found. When reading about Adolfo Constanzo in the papers, the stories covering Adolfo on the run ran side by side with the historic events that shaped the relationship between the U.S. and Central America. The shack was discovered while the last apologies for Iran-Contra were being made, and his cult was on the run while the U.S. was invading Panama and overthrowing Manuel Noriega, a dictator who had been an avid practitioner of Santeria and who'd been friends with Florentino Ventura. None of this is to say that Adolfo had any connection to those events, but the investigation into his crimes was happening during a time when there was secrecy and cover-ups on both sides of the border. If Adolfo's body count was higher than what was found in the river in Mexico City and at Rancho Santa Elena, those bodies might never be found. And it's unlikely that such a prolific monster only killed the people whose remains were recovered. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.